welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word as we move now into the time of the preaching of His wonderful Word. As we begin a series in Colossians today, we take the first two verses of chapter 1 as we go into an introduction to this great book. As we have for so long, let us one more day listen to the Word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. As to them, so to us, this is God's eternal word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will minister to our church in the same way and more that you ministered to the believers in Colossae. That, Father, through faithful preaching, we might not hear the inventions of man for a new time or the impressions of a preacher's mind for a new age or the turns and twists on an old scripture to fit new tastes or new interests. Father, take this preacher back into the text that you inspired and help him bring forth the message and the truth that you planted there for churches in every generation. More than anything else, Lord, help us see the incomparable Christ in his greatness, both past in the cross work and present in his life among his churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Pray for me especially. I kind of preached myself hoarse in the first service. Yeah, had a real run there for a while, and then I realized, wait a minute, I got another one. So anyway, I'll get through it if you get me through it through prayer. Amen? Yeah. Well, you know, this last year, with all the events that we've gone through, has been challenging for preachers, including this one. Not just the confusion of the times that we have lived through, and we still do. The times are not done, and the changes and the issues are not over. But the early months especially, quite challenging. Not just the confusion of the times, but the pressures of the times that they seem to exert on all of us as individuals and upon us as a church. And as those things developed, you may remember that a little over a year ago, I broke off my expositional series through the gospel of Luke, which we've been in in some time for some time. I broke it off at the end of chapter 19 in order to preach to those pressures. And I began to take certain messages by topic and certain chapters, great chapters of encouragement and insight and comfort, like Hebrews 11, for example. And for over a year now, I've been preaching uh, to the pressures of the times through different passages and so over other pastors. But I want you to know that I do intend to return to the Gospel of Luke and finish it. I just can't tell you when. How's that? (laughs) 
but I definitely do now at this point in my preaching with you intend to return to preaching expositionally through a Bible book like I have through my entire life in the ministry. And I want to move a bit from preaching to the pressures, though they still remain, to concentrating on the Christ, which is what, when you go through every book of the Bible, you end up doing. That's why I've done it for so many years. I've chosen a particular book to return to that practice of ministry with you called Colossians, and I can think of no better epistle that that helps us concentrate on the Christ than Colossians. It is an epistle filled with Christ, and uh, it exalts the incomparable Christ. Uh, A commentator from Dallas Seminary, whom I read this week on this passage, put it this way. He wrote, Colossians presents the all-supremacy, the all-sufficiency, the uniqueness, and the fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ as the God-man Savior, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and the total solution for man's needs, both for time and eternity. It is a cosmic book presenting the cosmic Christ, the creator, sustainer, who is also the one and only redeemer and reconciler of the universe. End of quote. Boy, that's a lot. And there's so much more about him that you'll find in Colossians. He is presented as the incomparable Christ. In fact, if you take a look at the book now, we'll be moving through different small parts of it today. But uh, I believe in many epistles, since they are gathered lines of thinking and teaching, you can find often a key verse or text that seems to bring the magnification of the whole book into the miniature. I believe you can do that in the book of Colossians by looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. They capture the book to me. Verse 9 says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That captures not only the sweeping truths of this epistle, but even the structure of it. Verse 9 reminds us that everything we'll ever need to know about God and about the Christian life is found in Jesus Christ. And if we know him, we don't need to know anybody else. And if we know what he teaches through the word of God, we don't need to know anything else. We don't need any further knowledge or strange revelation. We know it all. So verse 9 talks about all the fullness of theology that we'll find in Christ, the fullness of the truth. And that's really the first half of the book of Colossians, chapters 1 and chapters chapter 2, beginning into the the early part of chapter 3, are all about verse 9, how he represents the fullness of God. Everything you need to know about God, you can see in Jesus Christ. But then verse 10 shifts to the practical and says, when you know this wonderful Lord in verse 9, you are also filled with him. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and Christ is in you and he can live his power out through you and he begins begins to show his glory through your life in every dimension, your relationships, your family, your workplace life, your financial world, your testimony to a God-denying society, your ability to live for him under persecution, All of those are treated in the last two chapters of the epistle. And you will see that if you're filled with him, you're filled with all you need to glorify him. So this great epistle 
is about the incomparable Christ, who he is, the first two chapters, and what he can do through you, the last two chapters. It's a marvelous book. It's so marvelous that I can promise you three things that you're going to learn more about than you may have never learned from any other epistle as we study it over these months. Number one, you're going to learn more about the spiritual supremacy of Jesus. I think verse 9 makes my point. He is God Almighty. He is everything you need to know about God, and he's everything you need to go to in God. So the spiritual supremacy of Jesus, you'll learn more about that in this study. Number two, you're going to learn more about the spiritual strategies that are laid against truly knowing Christ. This little church was afflicted with with satanic attacks and false teaching that was laid against them to distract them from the greatness of Christ. And those strategies, though they're 2,000 years later, are still in place against modern churches today. You're going to learn about them. And then thirdly, you're going to learn more than you've ever learned, I hope, about the spiritual strength of Jesus. That's the last two chapters. It's more challenging to live for Jesus in this darkening age than ever in the experience of our lives. And we need a deeper knowledge of how Christ works his power and presence out in our lives and through our lives than ever before. And you will not be disappointed as we study it together. Today, I'm going to introduce the book to you. Look at the first few verses to give us an understanding of who who wrote it and who it's written to, and then a quick overview of what this marvelous book contains, okay? I'm going to do do that by answering three questions, as I often do in my messages. Number one, who was this book written to? Who were the people? What was their situation? How did they come to Christ? Number two, what is Colossians all about? What are the big picture points of its teaching and how it can change your daily life? And number three, why does knowing what Colossians teaches matter to you in your new millennium world today? That's where we're headed. So let's get after it. Number one, who is Colossians written to? Let's go to the first two verses that I read in your hearing as we open. This is an epistle written by the Apostle Paul the great pastor of the churches to the Gentiles, the one that planted churches all across uh, the the then known world. He is an apostle writing to this church. And he writes to the saints, the believers, and the faithful brothers in Christ, this little church at Colossae is the name of the city. Verse 2, the Colossians lived in Colossae. Okay, I think you're putting it together. Those of you that are awake, that's pretty exciting. So let's talk about the Colossians and Colossae and how the church came into being. Who were the Colossians? Well, most Bible uh, scholars and historians believe that they were a pretty small group of believers. This was likely a house church. The church had started about 10 years before Paul writes this epistle to them. A small gathering of people, who have been faithful to Jesus for 10 years. They were following Jesus in a city named Colossae, verse 2. What about the city of Colossae? What can we know about it? How does it compare to the cities that we know of today, even our city? Well, Colossae was located about 100 miles east of a city that we do know more about named Ephesus. How many are familiar with the name Ephesus? Of course, the epistle to the Ephesians penned to the people at Ephesus. Ephesus was a mega city. 
It was in an area that the Romans called Asia Minor. Today, it is in the coastal area of Turkey, as we would know it on the globe today. It was near the coast of Turkey, and 100 miles east of, Tur- of, of Ephesus, this great megacity, was a collection of smaller cities. Colossae was one of those. Now, Colossae had been in existence for about 500 years up to the time of Paul, and its glory days were behind it. Originally, it had been in a city of several hundred thousand people, and it was placed on an important trade route that went from the northern part of the Roman holdings in Asia Minor all the way down to the gateway to Africa. And so it was very prominent because it was on a trade route, a lot of money going through town, a lot of businesses developed, a lot of political influence was there. But then the Romans moved the path of the trade route. They moved the freeway. (laughs) Ever gone through that? What happens when they move the freeway? Businesses close and and houses are shuttered and things shrink. And that's what happened to Colossae. Went from being a large and populous and influential city to over decades and decades of time, a pretty small place. In fact, Bishop Lightfoot, who has written maybe the best English language commentary on Colossians that we have, he wrote it in the 1840s, said this, quote, without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul is addressed, end of quote. How'd you like to have that on your resume? The puniest church, the least important ministry, the most forgotten that Paul ever wrote an epistle to. But wait a minute. Actually, listen, Paul wrote you an epistle. That gives you greatness in the history of the church. See, Colossae, even though it was in the afternoon of its influence and importance, when Paul wrote to that little house church there, still was fighting the same kind of problems that bigger churches fight and modern churches fight. And the Holy Spirit chose to lead Paul to write a letter to the Colossians that would survive and would become part of our New Testament because their life was our life, their challenges were our challenges. It's still amazingly relevant. That's why we know it's part of the inspired New Testament. It's so relevant today. Well, what about this little church then, this house church? How did it get started? Well, that takes us about uh, 10 years prior to the writing of this. And it was when Paul was on his third missionary journey. The Apostle Paul was called by Christ in a divine encounter in the desert to go and take the word of God, not to the Jewish people who were more familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament, but to the Gentiles, to all those who were non-Jewish who lived throughout the Roman Empire because God has a heart for the world. And Paul was the first to take the gospel to the world outside of Israel. And so Paul went on journeys throughout the Roman Empire to preach the gospel and lead people to plant churches after he left those places. The third missionary journey Paul took, he arrived at Ephesus, the big megacity on the coast of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor at that time. Paul had a strategy. He didn't go to the smaller towns. He went to the major influence centers because he knew the people from the smaller towns had to go there for trade and commerce anyway. And if they heard about Paul's teaching, they could come and they could sit under his teaching for a few weeks or months. And he could influence a whole region by setting up his preaching in a megacity. And that's what he did. He preached, in fact, for three long years at Ephesus. It was one of the longest ministries he had. He planted a church there at Ephesus that grew. But also during the three years he was there, 
Many other churches started. In fact, all seven of the churches of Revelation, Revelations chapter two and three, remember those that John wrote a letter to back in, uh, farther on in AD 95, all seven of those churches, the church at Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and so on, they all got planted as Paul preached in Ephesus and people from those towns came to hear him. They got converted. Then Paul laid on their hearts, listen, you go back and you take this message to others and you start churches in your homes and let's see what God will do. And people went back and started small churches that became larger in some some places in those cities. Colossae was one of those places. Now we know that different people came from Colossae to hear Paul preach. One of those was a guy named Epaphras. You meet him, go to your Bibles now, in chapter 4 of Colossians. Epaphras is referred to by Paul, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a Colossian. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why did they know Epaphras? Go back to chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul had never been to the Colossian church. He'd never been in their town. But he sent somebody. Epaphras, verse 7 of chapter 1, was the one from whom the Colossians first learned the gospel, the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. You're saying, Pastor Joe, I'm a little confused. No problem. Let me put it together for you. Paul's in Ephesus, third missionary journey, preaching in those three years. People are hearing about this preaching of Christus, of Christ that Paul is preaching and how many thousands are turning to Jesus. And so people from different towns come. Apparently Epaphras, a non-believer, heard about this and the spirit moved his heart. And Epaphras journeyed to Ephesus and he must have sat under Paul's preaching in Ephesus. He came to Jesus Christ. There were probably some others with him. Maybe a runaway slave named Philemon was also with Epaphras at that time. A godly woman named Aphia, we think, might have been there. And another person named Archippus. All of them seem to have come to Jesus under the preaching of ministry uh, of the gospel by Paul in Ephesus. They stayed there for some weeks and they went to the nightly discipleship teaching that Paul had every night in a teaching hall there and they grew in Christ and Paul discipled them and and then he cast a vision in their hearts and he says when you go back to your town when you go back to Colossae bring the gospel with you tell this story to your neighbors tell it to your family members and if the spirit of God leads them to Jesus start a house church start a church just like you saw here in Ephesus and see what God will do and that's what happened Epaphras went back to Colossae, preached the gospel to his family. They got saved. His neighbors, they got saved. And he and his friends started a house church. What a beautiful story. Do you know it's happening every day all around the world? I've told you the church of Jesus Christ is the only unstoppable force in human life. And nothing, no COVID, no crazy culture, no world tilting on its axis is going to stop the growth of the church. So that church started and they pastored it as well as they could for 10 years. 10 years now passes. Epaphras is troubled by some of the things he sees in his church. There's some false teaching, some other things. He doesn't know what to do. And he thinks, I'll go find Paul. 
and ask his advice. Well, Paul, by this time, is no longer preaching to great crowds in Ephesus. Things have gotten a lot harder, and the world has gotten a lot more against the gospel. Paul is now not preaching in Ephesus. He's in a jail in Rome. (laughs) You can read about it in Acts chapter 28. Now, it's a jail that allows him to receive visitors. He's sort of of under house arrest, but he's confined. Epaphras finds out that the Apostle Paul, his teacher, is in Rome. And Epaphras journeys a thousand miles from Colossae to go tell Pastor Paul about some of the challenges that are going on in Colossae in this little house church, the false teaching particularly. And Paul is so concerned that he sits down and he dictates the epistle to the Colossians, and he sends it back to that little church. So we have it today. There's the story. Fascinating, isn't it? God's always working and always has his churches on his heart. By the way, I think there's a lot of parallels between the little church at Colossae and Valley Forth Church. You're saying, whoa, pastor, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, think about it. I mean, just not biblical parallels necessarily, but situational. I mean, um, Colossae was a good town that was living in the shadow of a megacity. Well, Spokane's a great town, but we've always lived in the shadow of a megacity called Seattle. (laughs) And when most people out of the region think of the Northwest, they think of the Emerald City. (laughs) And they don't think much about us. So we're kind of a city in a shadow, aren't we? Did you know that this church was planted by people who had come to Christ under the teaching of the gospel at a church called Fourth Memorial downtown here in Spokane almost 50 years ago? So people stirred by gospel teaching wanted to plant a church in another region, and they were led by the Spirit to do that. Did you know that just like the Colossian church, the Colossians didn't have any pastor to lead the the charge. They were just lay people that were moved by God. As I understand it, maybe some of you guys that have a lot more history here than I do can correct me, but there really wasn't a driving pastor that started this church in the beginning. It was mostly the vision of some lay people, just like in Colossae. Pastors, of course, were called and have served this church for many years. But so there's a similarity, I think. God laid a vision on the heart of everyday Christians who didn't have a lot of knowledge, but they went out by faith. Same thing happened here. Did you know that the Colossian church succeeded? It was 10 years old. This church has succeeded. We're almost 50 years old. And did you know that most church plants fail? Most church plants are not in existence by five years. So the Colossians succeeded. They grew. They went through their challenges, and they still were in existence. This church has succeeded under the Spirit of God's kind hand. Do you know that this church was founded in the same way that the Colossians were, and they always had a passion in Colossae for true doctrine. That's why Epaphras went to Paul, and he said, there's some problems with doctrine in our church. Do you know that our church has always had a passion for true doctrine, correct Bible teaching, and the centrality of the gospel? So you do see there's some things that are true. You see, that church mattered to Jesus, so work with me here. Doesn't this church matter to Jesus? Oh, yes. He's just as concerned with this ministry in this place as he was with that ministry in that place. And all churches have challenges too, don't they? This church does, and their church did, and God speaks to those. So that brings me to my next point, question really. If that's who the Colossians were, what is the epistle to the Colossians all about? What is involved in this great 
answer that Paul wrote to their challenges where there were two simple purposes that I believe Paul had in mind when he wrote Colossians. Here they are, number one. He wrote, number one, so that false teaching could be defeated. He wrote that false teaching could be defeated. We're going to see that most of chapter two of Colossians is devoted to deconstructing false teachers who are affecting the church. And number two, he wrote so that our fantastic Christ would be exalted. False teaching defeated, the fantastic Christ exalted, you got the whole book. By the way, most of it is not about the false teaching, it's about the fantastic Christ that we know and love. Why? Because the more you know about the truth, the less you're going to be bothered by error. The more Jesus is everything to you and his word informs you about everything about him, the less you're going to be susceptible to that junk. So let's take a look at both of these briefly. False teaching, what was going on in Colossae at the time? Why was it so serious? Well, you take a look at chapter 2, and I'll show you just in a few verses how Paul begins to speak to it. Chapter 2, verse 8, there was two dimensions to the false teaching. Two dimensions. One, there were some people that had come to the church that claimed that they were having visions and dreams from God and that they had new revelation that was more authoritative than the Old Testament that the Colossians had and the teaching of the apostles, which would eventually become the New Testament. In other words, they were saying the word of God and the gospel you receive is not enough for you to know. I have new knowledge from God and you need to come under my authority and my teaching. And if you don't know what I'm teaching you, you don't know enough to truly be saved and you don't know enough to know God. Chapter 2, verse 8 reveals it. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. These were deceivers. Their teaching was false and empty. It came from the pit of hell, but it was, it was dressed up as Christianity. It used the name of Christ, but Paul said it was empty of truth and it was deceiving. It's according to the elemental spirits of the world, he wrote, and it's not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's where he begins to deal with it. Now, how do we know it was related to visions and dreams? Verse 18 of chapter 2. Let no one disqualify you. Let nobody come into your life and say that they have a new revelation and they have great authority from God, greater than your pastor, greater than the word of God, greater than the scriptures. Don't let anybody disqualify you from what you already have. You have Jesus and he's everything you need. How are they trying to disqualify him? Insisting on asceticism, which is a harsh treatment of the body and worship of angels. Look at this going on in detail about visions. These were people that claimed to have visions and dreams, claimed to have new revelation, new authority, and they were taking over the lives of believers. And they were people with no character. Next phrase, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. That was a real problem. They were telling you, oh, the gospel you received from Paul was a good start. Some of his teachings very helpful, but you need Jesus and what I have to tell you. Beloved, anytime you ever meet anybody that says Jesus gave you a good start, but you need Jesus and, can I give you a theological application? Run to the hills. Don't even let them have a minute of your time. Well, they were invading this little church and 
Epaphras saw it, it was a problem, and that's what he told Paul. The second part of the false teaching was, after this revelation got them into deception about new truth, then these teachers said some of the things we've received talk about the fact that Jesus and the gospel are not enough. He's a good start, but you need to follow our laws and the laws that we bend from the Old Testament, and you need to perform works in order to be fully saved. You need to go through certain ceremonies that just conveniently enough we've had revealed to us in order for you to truly get to heaven. You need to sacrifice on certain days and you need me to be part of certain rituals. You need to do all these works. How do we know that legalism was part of the deception? Chapter 2, please, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, rules, works? from these false teachers. When they say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. They were talking about how you, you had to follow certain dietary rules and certain ways you dressed and certain things that you would not touch according to human precepts and teachings. These are of no value to you, Paul says. So that was creeping in. Look at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, trying to control your dietary life, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They were getting dragged into these legalistic things that were added to the gospel. That's always what false teaching does, by the way. It's happy to let the name of Jesus be associated with it. It doesn't it doesn't take the name of Jesus away. It just dethrones Jesus and puts itself in a place of authority. The answer that Paul had to all of this was to break it apart in chapter 2 and show how empty it was, and then look at verse 9, our key verse for the whole book. The answer is Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Translation, you never need anything more than who Jesus is and what the Bible teaches about him. If you think you do, you're a moving target for false teaching. So that's it. That's why Paul wrote us a book that's full of Jesus. Chock full of Christ. I said it's a book about the incomparable Christ. Every verse you walk through will show you the greatness of Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. I did a short short survey and study of just what this book begins to teach us about the incomparable Christ. In four short chapters to this little church, you're going to see like a technicolor portrait of Jesus Christ by Paul. Let me go through some of the verses. They won't be on the screen because I'm going to go through them too fast. You're going to see that Christ is the object of the Christian's faith, chapter 1, verse 4, because he is God's son, chapter 1, verse 13, because he's the redeemer, chapter 1, verse 14, because he's the very image of God, 115, the Lord of creation, 115, the head of the church, 118, the fullness of salvation, 119, the reconciler of the universe, 120, the one who contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2, verse 3, the standard by which all religious teaching is judged, chapter 2, verse 8, the fullness of God, undiminished deity, two nine, the one under whom all power and authority is subjected. Chapter two, verse 10, the victor over all the cosmic powers. Chapter two, verse 15, the reality of all the truths foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Chapter two, verse 17, the one exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. Chapter three, verse one, 
The one in whom we are complete and in whom our life is hidden, protected, and kept. Chapter 3, verse 3. The one by whom our new life will be gloriously manifested in his coming again. Chapter 3, verse 4. And the one through whom, because of our new life in him, we'll be able to put away our old manner of life and live a supernaturally new manner of life because he is going to do it through us in a new man with a new mind. Chapter 3, verse 5 to the end of the book. Jesus Christ, the incomparable Christ, is in this incomparable epistle. Praise the Lord. That's him. Now you see why I got hoarse in the first service. (laughs) I'll gladly get hoarse if I'm proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. You say, well, this is... It's interesting, Pastor, but still, you're talking about false teachings and things that happened 2,000 years ago to Greeks and Romans. How does this really relate to me 2,000 years later? Is this really a problem? Oh, yes. False teaching is more of a problem in the church of Jesus Christ today than I've ever seen it in my entire career. It's everywhere. And some evangelicals are moving away from their confidence in Christ because they're intrigued by it. For example, if you know a a, a Bible-believing Christian that's gotten caught up in the Catholic Church because they they become enamored with some of the ceremony and some of the ritual, they they, they feel it brings more realism to their life and their faith, that they are intrigued with new revelation and pronouncements from the Vatican that their Bible is not enough for them anymore. And more importantly than anything, they, they, they seem to like all the ceremonies and the, and the rituals and the works they have to do because it makes them feel that they're doing something for their faith. That's deception. And I do know evangelicals who've left their Bible roots and they've gone into the mysticism of Catholicism. Beloved, that's a Colossian heresy. You think about it, added revelation through a human authority that creates a system of works that shows you that Jesus is not enough. Every one of the cults and sects operating in America today are based on the Colossian heresy. You know what what their names would be. You know that they're all started by an individual many times who had a dream or a set of dreams or visions Sometimes from an angel, as Colossians 2 talks about, sometimes in other ways. And they've claimed authority over others. And they've claimed that what Jesus taught was a basis, but oh, there's more. And they put it into a book or a series of books. And they gather people around them. And don't you know what? After that comes a whole series of works that you have to perform. Deeds of service that you have to perform in order to possibly guarantee that you will make it into heaven. Jesus is a good start, but all my revelation and all these new teachings and the works that you do are what you have to have. And people are under bondage today because of the Colossian heresy. But don't think it doesn't invade evangelical churches. Today, there is a huge movement of people in the evangelical world who I believe are toying with the Colossian heresy. If you know believers that can't wait to buy the latest Christian book written by a person who claims that they've received this revelation from God, if you know 
They, they can't wait to see the next Christian movie about someone who had a journey into heaven or came back from hell and has added revelation that we need to know on top of what God has said. That person may be toying with the Colossian heresy. If you know people that can't wait to see the latest weekly YouTube release from some self-proclaimed prophet who has some smattering of Christian background, but who's a great communicator and a suave person, and now they've gotten all these new revelations about what's going to happen in the end times or the future of our country or anything else, you may be flirting with the Colossian heresy. If you're reading books by people who claim they've had visions and dreams, if you're going to services that are taught by guest speakers who bring you the download of their new revelation, you, my friend, may be flirting with the Colossian heresy. You may be in danger of coming under this authority of people who are deceived. Oh, it's very relevant today. That's why we're going to move through this great book. This is a time more than any other time where you need to know the truth about Jesus Christ. You need no other. And you need no other source of revelation than this one. Well, I guess not much has changed in 2,000 years. False teaching still needs to be defeated in his churches. But... The greatest thing his churches need to know is the fantastic Christ that this book exalts. So that brings me to my last question. Why should Colossians matter to you? Well, there's three hopes in my heart for you as we study this book in the weeks to come. I hope, number one, that it'll help you learn to worship. You know, worship today is powered by so many things that have nothing to do with the truth of Jesus. Some people believe that worship can't happen unless there's a certain electric level and a certain visible experience in a certain kind of room. Or that there's different kinds of words of knowledge or revelation spouted out in the midst of the gathering or whatever. Now, Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. As I teach you the truth about Jesus, you'll know how to worship him more deeply. Second, it'll help you be more aware of false teaching. I think I've made my point. We're going to see some of that. But most of the book is not about the false teaching. It's about the fantastic Christ we know. And then thirdly, I hope it'll help you live to be more like Jesus Christ. This book, the last two chapters of it, are going to sh shower you with such practical insight about life as a husband, life as a wife, life in family, life in the relationships in the church that create tension, life in your workplace, how to be a witness in your workplace, how to live in a Christ-denying culture, how to witness in a darkening time. They were going through all of that, and the last two chapters are filled with insight for you and me about those real-life challenges. That's why it matters. But let me go back to the book's key verse. Don't you miss it. By now you probably know where it is. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What's Colossians all about? The incomparable Christ. In fact, whenever any preacher opens a Bible, that's what he should be about. He should be preaching to you and arriving at 
telling you more about the incomparable Christ. Years ago, I, I've mentioned this to you, um, I stepped out of uh, full-time ministry after being in it for quite a while. I was kind of beaten up and, and uh, also burned out, and there was a lot going on. And I went out into the marketplace just making a living like everybody else, and God very graciously worked and restored my soul and, and moved. And uh, one wonderful night when we were at a service at our church through a guest Bible teacher, he recalled me to the ministry, and he just said, I want you to go back. He said it through the words in John, the last Gospel of John, chapter 20, that text was open. And like Peter, Jesus spoke through the word. He says, I want you to go feed my lambs. Only trouble was I'd been out so long that nobody knew me anymore. <laughs> I didn't have any of my old connections and wasn't even living near where I'd pastored. And yet I knew he wanted me to teach believers. And so I basically was left to preach and teach anywhere anybody would have me. So I just began to ask the Christians that I worked with in my office and other places, hey, if you ever need anybody to teach the Bible, come to your Bible study or your church, I'll come. <laughs> I'll come for free. <laughs> Hard to find offers, but they started to trickle in. And boy, I, I preached in every place I could find. I didn't care. I preached in little storefront churches with handfuls of people. I preached in house churches, a number of them. I preached in Bible studies. I came to teach and end up preaching. It was wonderful because the Spirit of God was moving then there was a girl in the office where I was working in sales who had a, a father who connected little churches in the, in the mountains of Northern California that was so far away from the major cities, most pastors didn't want to make the drive to go preach in those little places. And, and she said, my dad can help you find some of these little churches and they'll be glad to have you. And so sure enough, I got hooked up and I, was, I would drive up into the mountains of California every week after working a full week in the business world and I'd just go preach. <laughs> I preached in some humble places. I preached in some towns that were so small, and the churches right in the middle, little churches, little clapboard white churches, 100 years old, that they, they rang a bell in the front of the churchyard to call people in the town to the church. And I'd stand out there, and they would literally walk from all the little corners of the town to the church. What a blessing. In fact, I preached in some, church, I preached in some churches that's so small, Tina remembers this, that when we showed up with all six of our kids... Um, when we showed up, the church doubled. <laughs> it was awesome. They loved it. That's, I think it's why they invited me back. It wasn't my preaching. It was my family. They just liked having a fuller church. But anyway. But I knew he wanted me to teach again, and I'd go wherever I could. And God's spirit really moved in some of those, in pretty, pretty much all those places. I do remember one in particular. I was in the circuit going in the mountains in Northern California, and and I was asked to preach in a little town called Angel's Camp. <laughs> you know, something good's going to happen there. So <laughs> it was a mining, old mining town up in gold country. And I drove up to this little church. They had a building there, and you could just tell, you know, they were hanging on by their fingernails to keep the lights on. And they hadn't had a pastor there in a long time. And I came, and I walked up. I'll never forget it, to this wooden pulpit that they'd made, and half a dozen or so, maybe a dozen at most, 
faces upturned, wanting to receive the riches of the word. And I remember coming up to that pulpit and I looked down and they had put a a little plaque, a little brass plaque on the top of the pulpit so I'd see it, so any preacher would see it. And it had a quote from John chapter 12. It said, Sir, we would see Jesus. I'll never forget that. Lambs with upturned eyes to a worn out pulpit, but they were there to remind me of the only thing I could ever bring them that mattered and the only person I could ever bring them that would change their lives. Sir, we would see Jesus. (laughs) Nothing's changed. Huddled group of people in a house in Colossae looking up at Epaphras saying, Brother, we would see Jesus bring him to us. A gathered group of believers in another time and another place. Well, as we journey through Colossians, I promise to do my best to help you see Jesus.